The euro dollar system is total bullshit. But the reason we need to focus still on that is because you need to know your enemy. You need to know who is going to resist changing a structural monetary framework. And the euro dollar is not central banks. It's the large, large cartel of banks. And they're the ones that are the most vocal critics nowadays of cryptocurrencies and digital currencies and Bitcoin. They're going to fight tooth and nail to preserve their own monetary privilege. Hello there from Prague. How are you all? I'm here at BTC Prague. It's been an amazing event. Congratulations to the host. They've done an amazing job. Also, if you haven't checked it out, you haven't seen it off on Twitter, I tweeted about it. Go and check out Samantha DeWall's presentation. Uh, she's 12 years old. She came on after Sailor and she absolutely crushed it. She did a whole presentation on kids and Bitcoin. Definitely go check that out. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today, I've got a banger for you. I've got the second part of our Miami Live event with Lynn Auden and Jeff Snyder. Now, this is a show people have been asking me and Danny to make for ages. You both know Lynn. You both know Jeff. You both love them. So after Jeff came on the show, people were saying, look, you've got to get Jeff and Lynn in a room together. You've got to get them to hash it out. Got to talk about how QE works and inflation, the money printer, etc. And so the first chance we have was when we're in Miami for the Bitcoin event. And so we put on a live event, we got them down, and they did. They hashed it out. Now, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I obviously got a little bit lost in this from time to time. But listening to them go back and forth was, was great. I'll be interested to hear your feedback. Did you? Are you all super smart? Did you all follow everything or... Were you like me? Did you, did you get a little bit lost sometimes with this? Let me know. Um, I'm definitely going to be listening back to this one. Also, we've got another live event coming up in Sydney, Australia in September. On September the 9th, tickets are available at whatbitcoindid.com. Click on WBD Live. All right, I'm back off to the conference. Let me know what you think of the show. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. So... What an amazing pairing to bring here. Ever since we had Jeff Snyder on the show, look, you all know I, there's no person I love interviewing more than Lynn Alden, but ever since we've had Jeff Snyder on the show, people have been saying, can you get Jeff and Lynn together? Can you get Jeff and Lynn together? And so it's like, how do we make it work? Because Lynn is the most in-demand macro person in the world probably right now, and her time is very precious. And trying to get the two together. <laughs> Trying to get our queen here with Jeff Snyder has been very difficult, but we've managed to make it work. So here we are, here we go. So a big round of applause for Lynn Alden. And can we have a big boo for Jeff Snyder? No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. We love Jeff. You can do it! Right. I'm, I would be a fraud if I asked this question. So the first question is going to be from Danny. All right. This is yes or no with a gun to your head. Is QE money printing? Yes. You're going to make me do this? I'm going to make you do this. All right. I'm going to get out this. I'm prepared. Oh, no. This is from the bank. Keep, of keep, keep the mic near to your mouth. Let me get it up first. This is from the Bank of Canada, and you can all go on their website and see it. There is a common misconception that we are just printing money, but that isn't the case. We pay for these purchases with settlement balances with their bank reserves. In effect, settlement balances act like loans from financial institutions to us. When we buy assets, we borrow from financial institutions by crediting them with a deposit of settlement balances in the accounts that they have at the Bank of Canada. 
like deposits that you may have at your bank, settlement balances are an in interest. Right now we pay an interest rate, blah, 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 blah. No, it's not money printing. It's an asset swap. Sorry, Lynn, but is he wrong? I'll point out that nobody more than a central banker wants you to think that QE is not money printing. So, of course, of course, the central banks are going to say it's not money printing. And when I, when I hear the asset swap thing, one thing I point out is that it is an asset swap. You have to ask what happens before the asset swap. Did they have an asset that then they swap for something? Or did they create an asset that they then swap for something? And so it's not that it's not an asset swap. It is. It's that they create a reserve and then they swap it for something. So you have a situation where, let's say they're buying government bonds, they're, the government is in a position where they're selling bonds and they're not pulling capital out of the market. They're not, you know, if I, if I have dollars and they sell bonds to me and I give them dollars, they're pulling dollars out of the economy and they're putting treasuries into the economy. And from my perspective, I don't really care if I'm just using them as savings. And maybe they do it for foreign sector, maybe they do it for other sector, but if they, run out of buyers, or if they want to jack up asset prices, they say, okay, we're going to sell bonds into the economy, which allows us to spend money into the economy. But instead of pulling that out, we're not pulling dollars out of anybody. There's no real buyer that's buying these bonds. It's that the central bank is creating bank reserves and then buying the bonds. The caveat where the money printing question becomes relevant is that if you're just doing QE without super large deficits, or if there's loan destruction, like defaults that are happening that are bigger than the deficits, then it won't be inflationary because you're not just sending money to people. The biggest kind of combo that really becomes money printing is when you have very, very large fiscal deficits, especially ones that are direct to you know, not the top 1%. If you're actually sending people PPP loans to turn into grants, if you're sending them stimulus checks, and then you're financing that by QE, by QEs to, to finance that fiscal spending. I, th I think you're dancing around the limitation Jeff, here. Talk to us about so we can. Um, because what you're saying is that the central bank causes money printing when the commercial bank acts in response to the, to the asset swap, right? Because ceteris paribus, nothing else would have happened. And I think that's a faulty assumption, which is why we never see any effects from QE in any marketplace because the assumption is that commercial banks act in response to what central banks are doing, when commercial banks have their own limitations, which is what always thwarts quantitative easing. Because the central banks want the commercial banks to act in response to this, exactly how you say it, but that's not the limiting factor. It's not the level of bank reserve, it's not the central bank purchases, it's the banks have their own internal constraints, usually volatility and liquidity constraints of their own that forces them to, to then just do this basic asset swap. They're more than happy to swap a treasury bond for a bank reserve, scalping a few pennies along the way, because they're constrained in every other balance sheet way. So that's why it never becomes money printing, because money printing is done by the commercial banking system, not the central banking system. Let me put it this way. Every single time when a government gets over, say, 90 100% debt to GDP, one of the biggest buyers of the government bonds becomes a central bank. And it's because you start to get so lopsided in terms of how many debt securities are in the market versus how much money's in the, in the market that you need to create more money to buy those bonds. And I think the key thing is to realize that if you're- But it, then why isn't it inflationary? Because it's not combined with fiscal spending. So for example, if you look at the Japan- So QE is dependent upon the fiscal authority? I mean, again, you're not talking about money printing. You are because-, because for 
No, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the whole point of money isn't necessarily the money stock. We have to keep in mind it's the money in circulation. That's yes. always been the, def the, the, the factor that decides whether something is money printing or whether it's inflationary or deflationary is how much money is actually circulating, which is why the limiting factor is the commercial banks. Because the commercial banks, along with non-banks nowadays, they're the ones who actually do the circulation. So if the central bank wants commercial banks to circulate money and commercial banks don't want to do it, this is exactly the problem that the Japanese have had along with all, every QE in existence. It always ends with the commercial banks. And believe me, the central bankers know this. And they would love for you to believe that QE is money printing. In fact, Jay Powell went on 60 Minutes in May of 2020 and fucking lied his ass off and said it was digital money printing. He said, I flooded the world with digital dollars. So the problem is the commercial banking system. It's always commercial bank factors. In fact, commercial banks don't need reserves. If they were free from constraints, they wouldn't need any reserves at all. They would just use the same forms of liquidity that they used for decades. That's why there were practically no bank reserves in the system before Lehman Brothers. It was never more than 10 billion because commercial banks settled based on their own practices. So. If commercial banks want to do money circulation, they don't need the central bank to do it for them. In fact, in my view, central banks do QE in response to the fact that commercial banks aren't acting the way they're supposed to. Can I, can I just interrupt for one second? I think- No, there's, we're there's, talking here. <laughs> there's going to be some people in the audience that are a little bit lost, including me. Um, can we just go back to explaining like, precisely what QE is so we can know exactly what we're talking about here? And will you agree? No. <laughs> Lynn, from your side, QE is? QE is basically when the central bank creates more bank reserves and then swaps them for some sort of asset, usually a government bond or mortgage-backed security, or in rarer cases, it could be other assets like the Bank of Japan will do it with um, equities. But normally, the, the, the most common one would be government bonds. Jeff? Yep, that's it. That's, and I think so. Going that's back the mechanics to, of QE. Yeah. And so, going back to your point, for example, during COVID, there was a huge spike in um, bank deposits. So, not just bank reserves, but bank deposits. And so, if you, you know, there are people, for example, you're working as a school teacher, you had $10,000 in the bank, the government sends you money, it shows up in the bank. Now, if that was not financed by QE, it'd be coming out of other bank reserves somewhere. It would come out of bank deposits and bank reserves. But because they were able to inject that with now, without pulling it out of anywhere else, they actually increased the amount of broad money in the system. And in that example, it was not from bank lending. Banks were not doing excessive amount of lending during COVID. Um, instead, it was the fiscal stimulus going around the fact that the banks weren't lending. And so... If you go back to, say, you know, the 70s and, and 80s and things like that, that inflation was not because of QE. It was not because of large fiscal deficits, although they, they weren't helping. The, the fiscal deficits weren't helping. It was primarily because of demographics and bank lending in the 70s. That's where most money creation was coming from. Whereas the biggest ever spikes in, in broad money supply, so bank let's, take, let's call it bank deposits plus currency and circulation, the biggest spikes ever in those were the 40s and the early 2020s, and that was when things seized up, banks weren't lending, and there was very, very large fiscal deficits that were then monetized by the central bank. So it's especially that fiscal plus QE combo. And you can imagine, you know, in March 2020, the treasury market completely froze. It, it, bid-ask spreads blew out, liquidity blew up. 
the foreign sector has tens of trillions of dollars of assets. They were starting to sell hundreds of billions of them for dollars because they had a dollar shortage, which you cover all the time, all the euro dollar stuff. They're, really? they're selling assets to get dollars, and the, the whole thing seized up. And so if, the, if you have a completely liquid treasury market, and the treasury says, bad news, we're going to about to issue trillions more treasuries into a liquid treasury market that foreigners are actively selling, that's where the Federal Reserve comes in and says, well, we have a solution. We're going to create more base money and swap them for those, for those treasuries so that you're able to finance that even though there's nobody in the real world who's actually swapping dollars to get these treasuries. You're, you're unseizing an illiquid market because of that. All right. Look, there's... I'm going to disagree with a lot of that because the treasury market was already illiquid. In fact, the treasury market, that's a misconception that the treasury market is entirely liquid. It's not. There are actually two different parts of the treasury market. There's something called off the run and on the run. And what happened is, what happens all the time is that foreign reserve managers park their reserve assets because they don't trust the Fed and they don't trust the euro dollar system, nor should they in either one. They park their assets in illiquid off-the-run treasuries because they don't need to be liquid. You're just holding them until maturity, recycling through them. Maybe you have to sell one every once in a while. And in March 2020, as you pointed out, because of a massive dollar shortage, reserve managers had to suddenly sell these treasuries in which there was no ready market available for. So the treasury market didn't break down. The dollar system did, which precipitated the selling. The on-the-run market was still functioning relatively well because the on-the-run market was where all the demand was. So the idea that the treasury market broke down and the Fed needed to come in and save it is a misconception. Uh, there, is no on the, there is no liquid market for off-the-run treasuries. The more interesting part of March 2020 was why did everybody have to sell in the first place? And this is the, argument, this is the story we're getting into now with why are banks failing over the last couple of months? It's why are they forced to sell assets? And they're forced to sell assets because they have a liability mismatch, a liquidity problem, a dollar shortage. And the Fed didn't fix it by buying up off-the-run assets. They didn't do much for the repo market to begin with. So... What, what kind of dollar shortage did they have? Because my understanding of the bank crisis recently was because they were holding treasury bonds and uh, they were long duration, there was a run on the bank, so they just didn't have the assets required to service their clients. No, they could have been fine. The, the problem is how, how those assets but were underwater. Fine. What's that? But they weren't fine. Yeah, but they weren't fine because they were forced to sell them. Why were they forced to sell? Exactly. Well, there was a run on the banks. There was a deposit run because regional banks have been bleeding cash for well over a year, going back into early 2020. And the real interesting systemic dollar shortage question recently, not March 2020, but recently is why they aren't in the wholesale markets to borrow all those funds back. And SVB tried to go in the wholesale markets. We don't really have a real answer to this yet. Because all you really need to do if you have a bunch of illiquid assets on your book is liquefy them, package them in some form of collateral package, go to Goldman Sachs and say, I want to swap treasuries and then borrow funds in the, in the repo market. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't SVB yeah, well, go to the Federal Reserve? Because there's not enough reserves in the system. <laughs> There's four trillion. <laughs> yeah, which is not enough. How is that not enough? We used to we used to have a functioning economy with less than ten billion. So how can we now have how we have this overwhelming need for four trillion? Because of the other assets that are growing even quicker. So for example, the amount of foreign assets that are owned. So the the massive growth of the treasury market 
One thing to think is that every security in the market is basically a claim for dollars, right? So we have tens of trillions of dollars locked in the equity market, tens of trillions of dollars in real estate, tens of trillions of dollars in bonds. And technically, any owners of those securities can sell those with the expectation that they can get dollars in return. But of course, the problem is that you have literally over $100 trillion worth of these assets and nowhere near as many actual dollars, especially base dollars, let alone broad claims on dollars, to actually satisfy those. So at any time when you have a higher than normal amount of net selling for these types of assets, you get a liquidity problem. And we don't just see this in the US. So for example, you know, going back to say, the, well, let's start with the US for, for a second. So for example, during the COVID crash, and then actually again during the, during the guilt crisis in like September, that kind. So if you look at, before we get to the UK, if you look at the US market, both those times in March 2020 and in September 2022, the treasury market was getting really illiquid and wobbly. And in March 2020, it was the off-the-run securities that had the biggest issue. But if you also look at treasury auctions, so brand new treasuries coming to market, you were getting like fat tails on these auctions. And so a sign of a successful auction is that, you know, when you're bidding the, the treasuries out, you know, the first price and the last price shouldn't be very different. Right, because it's kind of like there's there's plenty there's far more buyers than you're selling, and the first the first security sell the last security sell are basically the same price. When you don't when you have like a sloppy auction, there's like not enough buyers kind of, and it's like it's just like really shaky. There's bad liquidity. You get a long tail where like the final security sells for a much worse price than the initial security, and you saw that both in March 2020, and then you saw it again in September 2022. But then of course a worse example was hap was was what happened in the UK where they come out, there's high inflation, they're, try, they're about to pivot and start doing QT, and then they come out and say, hey, we have this new budget, bigger deficits, we're gonna issue a ton more gilts, uh, UK sovereign bonds. The market throws an absolute fit, yields spike, but then of course the problem is that all these pools of capital hold these assets on leverage, all these pension funds, so they have to start selling, and then you have it goes back to the thing. There's so many holders of sovereign bonds, and all of those are claims for dollars. And so if you get tons of sellers, I mean, well, in this case, pounds, you have all these claims for pounds at the same time, and it just would completely liquefy itself, and there's just not enough pounds to meet that demand. So what happens? The Bank of England had to literally cancel a speech. They were going to talk about balance sheet reduction. They had to cancel speech the next day and be like, just kidding, even though there's 10% inflation, we're gonna go ahead and create new bank reserves to buy these gilts because too many of them are selling at the same time. And so it's a reliquification. It's basically a buyer of last resort, not with existing dollars, but pounds, but with brand new pounds that are just created out of thin air to take those off the market for the fact that there's no actual genuine buyers of them at these prices. But that, even that, that's the, that's the point that the liquidity, and you're right, every asset is a claim on dollars, but those dollars are not physical dollars, they're not government dollars. Most often, they're bank claims. They're a claim on a bank. And so the problem with liquidity is not that there aren't reserves, it's that there aren't enough banks that are willing to create those dollars to, to settle that claim. And so the shortage in money, whether it's UK pounds or anywhere else, it doesn't really matter because everything's always on the other side of the dollar, is that there was a shortage of bank capacity or really banks willing to take on that settlement liability. So it's a shortage of banks, not a shortage of bank reserves. I think one way of looking at it, going back to the global financial crisis, right before all that broke down, there were 
you know, the, like the, the, I think there were 64, like the, if you look at how much debt was in the system compared to bank reserves, there was like a ratio of like 64 to one. So there's like 64 claims on dollars just from debt, let alone equity, just from debt, like dollars that are literally contractually owed to in the future at a, time, at a, at a specific time. There are 64 times as many dollars owed to security holders as there were dollars. And if you're running a bank, you're kind of running it based on, based on faith. Uh, that not too many people are going to come back and ask for dollars back at the same time, where you're holding all of these illiquid securities, and you're kind of you're operating in the system where there's far far more claims on dollars than there are dollars. And back then they had a system because they had so few bank reserves that if if two percent or three percent or five percent of your deposit base comes back at the same time and wants dollars, you know have to you have to do all these like now back of you know gymnastics with other banks to make sure you can meet that liquidity redemption, which works for one bank. The question is what if the entire banking system, what if five percent of people want to pull their money out? Or phrase another way, what if people want to pull five percent of their money out, not from one bank, from the banking system? And the answer is you can't. There's not enough dollars. Um, and so we kind of saw a similar thing in these recent banks where now because of uh, what happened in global financial crisis, there's higher liquidity requirements, there's, there's stronger capital ratios, things like that. And so banks don't want to be caught out with just having, say, 3% of cash as a percentage of deposits or 5% or of cash percentage of deposits. They want to have way more because you have to be able to meet just arbitrary bank runs, especially ever since March of 2023 where at any given moment, even a healthy bank could face 10% let, of people want their money back. Doesn't that argue for a, a shortage? Because what you're say, essentially saying, and you're right, I agree with you, the banks have enormous liquidity cushions because they're basically telling you they don't trust the Fed. Bank reserves are not useful as a form of liquidity. If they were, you wouldn't need the liquidity cushion. We would go back to the way it used to be before, where liquidity was created by the banking system itself, because not everything is settled in bank reserves. In fact, there was a time when, when most financial transactions were settled privately between banks. The old correspondence system, what's still left of it. So the fact that banks need, feel they need to hold massive amounts of cash, as well as massive amounts, have access, constant access to massive amounts of on-the-run treasuries, basically tells you they don't trust the system. I think the thing is to separate one bank from all banks. And so, for example, that system worked on the premise that the system itself was stable and that any one bank or any small set of banks could get liquidity from other banks at any time. Whereas when the system gets over leveraged enough, like it was in 2007, which was like the peak of leverage, private sector leverage, you have a situation where it's not just one bank that has a problem, it's that the entire banking system, far and wide, that there's so many claims for dollars relative to dollars, relative to base dollars in the system, which are liabilities of the Fed, either in physical form or in bank reserve form. And so the whole system becomes such that if just a tiny single digit percentage of people want to have physical cash or want to you know, sell something for, for cash, even digital cash, they can't. And so I think the key thing is the difference between just one bank needing liquidity, which there's all manner of ways to do it, versus the entire system is short liquidity because there's not enough bank reserves. There's not enough actual cash in the system. And back then it was because you had, you know, bank reserves were growing very, very slowly while claims on bank reserves. So every deposit in a bank is basically a claim for a bank reserve 
Um, every debt instrument is a longer term claim for a bank reserve. And the number of those claims was growing like exponentially to the tens of trillions, while the number of bank reserves was growing like practically linearly and it was like, you know, hundreds of billions. And there's just, the, eventually the ratio got so big that we haven't seen it in since like the 30s or, you know, since like 1929 and it blew up. And we, we've, we've kind of seen a similar thing more recently. And it's, it's different between system versus one bank. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way for you to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and it provides privacy by default. With Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make CoinJoins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up today, we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and they not only have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out. And with their 24-7 live chat support, you can always get help if needed. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also today, we have Unchained. Now, events, exchanges and traditional banks over the last year have been an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But listen, I know for some of you, this can be daunting, which is why our friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I've personally been through the process and I've now set up the vaults for my football team, Rail Bedford. And okay, I've got a personal recommendation here. The multi-sig solution which Unchained have created is so easy to use. They also ship you the required devices and walk you through this step by step so you understand exactly how the vaults work. After you set up, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. Now, if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchained's concierge onboarding is a simple way to get started. So book your onboarding today at unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D dot com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code what Bitcoin did. All right. I know it's dark. <clears throat> But I do want to see a show of hands. Who is completely following this to the extent they know who is correct? <laughs> I do not believe you. Okay. Um, there was like eight hands here. So I feel very fortunate we have you both here. Just, just from, from somebody who's not completely following this, does it matter who's right? Because we're still getting fucked by the system. Does, I mean, does it actually matter? Like, do, 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 does does the root of the problems, the economic problems that we are seeing, you know, here in the U.S., where people have seen more than 10% inflation in the U.K., I think we're still at 10% inflation. You look at other countries around the world, 10, 20, 30, up to 100. Like, we we all know there is a massive problem in the structure of the fiat economy, 
and we all know everybody is getting screwed and some people getting more screwed than others. Does why it's happening matter? Or should we, like if we could, we could have you two duke it out, but really in the end, is it more important to know how we fix it? I'll start with you, Jeff. Oh, it's always more important how you fix it, but it does matter what's wrong because we have to get from A to B. So even if you have the best solution in B, A I to know B, B we know what B, B stands for. Yes, yeah. and there are a couple lines. It's from, it's from F to B. It's what? It's from F to F, <laughs> F of ready to B. But we still have to get there. In order to get there, you have to figure out where we are, yeah. what we're actually doing. So in order to get from A, the asshole system that we have now, to B, whatever that ends up being, <coughs> we have to know something about the assholes. Yeah. I agree with that, um, and the one thing we've always agreed on is that the euro dollar system is like absolutely fucked. Yeah. Basically, that's that's the one. That we, we, Man, there's language. no argument there. Yeah. I've hey, never heard you swear like I this. I did it this time. We've been on abs- We've been on opposite sides of, the, of, of debates. <laughs> we've been on abs- like absolute opposite sides of, of debates sometimes, but it's basically that's that's a common point where 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 the details matter. One, number one is if you're an investor, especially in traditional asset classes and you want to know whether inflation or deflation is going to happen, there are obviously multiple factors. I mean, things ranging from, you know, AI, for example, is a recent variable that we have to consider, but money creation and what defines money is one of those key things. And so, for example, I've had, I've had good calls on markets, I've had bad calls on markets, but one of my highest conviction and, and most useful calls was this, is, this kind of stuff is going to be inflationary and avoid bonds and we had 2022 was the worst year ever for bonds, basically. Um, you know, bond bulls have been like devastated, and getting into hard assets has been a useful strategy during that money printing environment. I mean, once it started to roll over, we had to make different calls. Um, but that's where getting it right matters. If you're an investor and you don't know if it's going to be higher inflation or deflation, that that will affect the returns. If you should buy value stocks versus bonds, if you should buy Bitcoin versus bonds, if you should buy gold versus bonds, or some sort of combination thereof, and how to weight it, that's relevant. And then, yeah, number two, it's about finding the next system. And that's why, I mean, obviously, a, a unusually large percentage of my time is, is on the solution, the, the B. Can I add one more thing here? Um, just because one, one, one part that's uh, it's important, again, we agree on that, the euro dollar system is total bullshit, and it's... Uh, but, that's, but the reason we need to focus still on that is because you need to know your enemy. You need to know who is going to resist changing a structural monetary a framework. And the euro dollar is not central banks. It's the large, the large cartel of banks. And they're the ones that are the most vocal critics nowadays of cryptocurrencies and digital currencies and Bitcoin. So you have to know your enemy to a certain extent because they're going to fight tooth and nail to preserve their own monetary privilege. Jeff, what, what could you describe the kind of money that you think we need that would fix the system? Like, what would be a perfect money? What attributes would it have? You mean something like a, a physical standard or... Well, no, anything. What are, what are the attributes of a good money? I think a good, just big picture terms. Yeah. Nothing specific here. Nothing specific. No, just big picture terms. You want a system that's able to dynamically match money supply and money demand, right? Because those are dynamic forces that change all the time. And the way to best, most efficiently do that will lead to the best, most efficient economic outcomes, which is what we're really doing here because money is nothing more than a tool for the commercial system. 
or it's supposed to be, not a, not a position of political power and privilege, which is what it's become. So as any kind of system that is that kind of fits the needs there, both of those, both of those requirements where we have supply meeting demand without creating too many frictions and doing so in a way that can change through time because the, the monetary system, the real economy is always constantly being rewritten, it also needs to be flexible enough to meet with the changing periods. So yes, I'm describing the Eurodollar system, unfortunately, so it, obviously it's the same sort of attributes, it's just not run by a cartel of large banks. Can I, can I ask, so who here wants to hold money for which you don't know the supply of? Any takers? <laughs> Jeff, why is your hand up? Because why wouldn't you know what the supply is? I, I'm not arguing for the euro dollar. <laughs> the euro dollar sucks. So the, I guess the, the bigger point I'm trying to get to is that when you ask perfect money, what is perfect money or what is ideal money, you'll get very different answers from, say, the people who want to issue that money or people who are academically inclined and systematically inclined and think, like, what is, the, what is if I were to design the system, what I would make it like? It'd be like, it'd be like dynamically adjusting. and it would, Whereas, like, if you're the user of the money, your answer is, I want, I want the money that's going to be, is going to appreciate over time. I know the supply. I know the rules. The rules are not going to be rug pulled on me. I want to be able to bring it anywhere in the world. I want nobody to be able to dilute it. I want nobody to be able to just take it from me, um, especially easily, just like, you know, with a push of a button. Um, and I want it to be fast and I want it to be secure. Um, and so you get actually very different answers to that question if you're kind of looking at it from a user perspective. You know, you hear like a dynamically adjusting system and users are like, I, no, I don't want that. I just want to hold hard money. Whereas if you're a central banker, if you're a normal banker, if you're an academic, if you're um, a monetary historian, you're like, hey, we need this kind of system that's going to meet all these different requirements. And it just doesn't take off because users don't want that money. And I think, I think that's where I, I go to the Austrian view that money is an emergent phenomenon. And even when you have top-down designs of money, like fiat currencies, it's not an accident that some of those monies are accepted in other countries and ones are not. So there's a reason that the dollar is accepted more places than the yuan. There's a reason that, you know, like the Nigerian currency is not accepted everywhere. Um, there's a reason that certain currencies are accepted more often than others, and it's because those are actually kind of free market choices. So, for example, when my family in Egypt you know, when they like hold physical cash dollars, they're making a choice. No one's telling, like in America, we kind of have to use dollars. Um, but when you're in Egypt, you, you could hold yuan. You could hold something else. You could hold Egyptian pounds. That's the easiest one to do. But they're making a decision to hold dollars, um, let alone obviously gold, Bitcoin, all these others. And so money's at, the, at its root really an emergent phenomenon, but that even includes attempts at top-down money creation. But why are they choosing to hold dollars? That's the question, because dollars are usable. And dollars become usable and became usable, not because they're fixed or everybody knows their supply, but because they became widely accepted everywhere because they were everywhere. And the only way they could be everywhere was because it was elastic. I would say, ironically, it's because it was the most decentralized system they had. So, for example, one of the kind of the features of the, of the Federal Reserve is that it was like this weird agreement to make it half public and half private. 
you know, it's like the you know the president can't just call up this, the head of the central bank and change the rules, right? There's actually kind of a, a set of balances, and it takes pretty extreme intervention to actually centralize it. And so one is that the United States has no, no country has perfect rule of law, but the United States has one of the better, more consistent rules of law, right? So China's can rug pull you more easily than the United States can. In, in a broad sense, you're more likely to get rug pulled. And you have closed capital accounts and things like that. And so the combination of being the largest military power, largest economic power, uh, you know, biggest liquidity, and then some reasonable degree of rule of law and decentralization so that there's no one person that can just print a ton of money. It's, it's you know, the fiscal lever exists, the central bank lever exists, the commercial banking lever exists. And these are kind of in this sort of delicate dance that has allowed it to maintain for decades. It's actually that that rules-based system, even though the rules aren't as solid as something like Bitcoin, for example, there's some degree of rules to it. And that's what partially would made it trust globally. But Lynn, you just said that as the euro dollar was being accepted, the euro dollars were being created all over the place. Nobody knew what the supply was. Nobody knew what it was. In fact, to this day, nobody knows what it was. Yet the euro dollar came to be the dominant form of currency anyway. And the reason is because you guys can go, I can go, to, I can go visit you in Australia and take a little piece of plastic out of my pocket, stick it into a computer, and get goods and services with it. Because the euro dollar is usable in lots and lots and lots and lots of places in lots and lots and lots of ways. And you're right, the point about... Um, Courts of law in particular, that's probably one of the, the foundational arguments for using the dollar to begin with. But by and large, it became acceptable because it became available. And so if you don't have a currency that's available, it's not usable. And people will choose to use a medium that's accessible to them. And if it's not accessible, they can't use it whether they like it or not or whether they know it or not. I, I think you're actually right. I've experienced that traveling the world and a lot of places will accept the dollar. But there is one currency that is accepted in every single country in the world uh, from a mobile phone, and there's only one. That's that's it's a smile, right? It's a Bitcoin. It's a big smile. So where you so where you can't get on the so for example, if you're in Iran, you can't accept uh, digital. You can't use your plastic card there. It's not accepted. Yeah, but I'm talking more micro granule scale. Because can I go buy a drink here with Bitcoin? If they accept it, yeah. If, and if they do don't, Peter, if. They that's do, if there's the, too many ifs with Bitcoin currency. Well, no, I mean, but that's the thing. The dollar system pervaded everything. It penetrated everywhere it's, precisely because the banks were incentivized to do that. But I don't disagree. I think the point I'm making is that we have this new emergent system, Bitcoin, that's growing. If they don't accept Bitcoin, I can have them accept it within about three minutes. <laughs> no, but you can. You can teach them to. Exactly. And the, the thing is, we, we didn't bring you here to stitch you up. You're one of the most popular guests we've had in the last two years. People love you. Like, when, when we've made the shows with you, people are like, Jeff's amazing. But when, the first time we had you on, which was in Austin? Yeah, it was, no, Austin. It was here in Miami. Oh, was, here in Miami. was it here in Miami? Anyway, people said to us, uh, Jeff described his perfect money, and you basically described Bitcoin. <laughs> you kind of described Bitcoin. Except for that one part. Which is the one part? Which it needs to be widely available. Okay. It needs to be, that's the problem. But how do you go from not widely available to widely available? I think the answer is patience. I don't think it is. I think it needs to have some form of infrastructure, technical capability. Think about how the euro dollar came to be dominated. 
I mean, you had to have investments in technology. I mean, how can I use a credit card in a foreign country that somehow connects to my local bank and settles through multiple mechanisms? I know Bitcoin is a much more elegant solution to that. No, no, but how, how long did that take to emerge? Oh, a long time. Okay. So that's what we're talking about. It's patience. <laughs> that's the only difference. Yeah, you had but a, you, you still had, haven't solved the other problem. Go ahead. You had a situation where the you know after World War II, especially the you know the largest economy in the world, basically untouched by the war, had all the gold, you know, had the industrial prowess, was a trade surplus nation, was trying to rebuild Europe by flooding them with dollars. Um, so you had this incredible foundation and network effect to launch this system from, and even then it already had a legacy stretching back to 1792 when the you know, dollar was defined, right? So it's like this, you had this long buildup network effect in the United States, then you had all these wars, and then you had a launch pad from that very strong base. Whereas when you look at something like Bitcoin, you know, is, it, is Bitcoin more accepted or less accepted than 10 years ago? And the answer is more accepted. And I had this discussion with George Selgin on, on I think it was with David Leonard. I forget what, what, what um, show it was, but I was talking with um, George Selgin. And it's like, in any given country, because it's kind of a local monopoly on the currency, unless it's like a failed state, you know, 10 out of 10 merchants will accept the local money. Right? You have a very dense jurisdiction. But as soon as you go outside of that country, that acceptance fades rapidly for most currencies. Even, even like the Norwegian currency, it's a strong currency, but if you try to find a vendor in New Jersey that's gonna just accept physical Norwegian currency, it's, it's almost none. So, you know, other than the dollar and to some extent like the Euro and a few others, they quickly lose saleability outside of their own jurisdiction. And then you think, what, which currencies are somewhat global? Which, which ones are somewhat globally accepted? So one of them is the dollar. That's number one. It's, it's got the entrenched network effect, the most liquidity, the biggest capital markets, rule of law, launched by the biggest economy, entrenched network effects, deals in the Middle East, all, everything that kind of like fed the network effect and then it becomes self-sustaining. Another one would be gold. If you bring a gold coin with you, especially like a sovereign gold coin, which gives it some degree of authentication and like, you know, easy verification. If you bring a gold coin, a gold eagle with you, almost anywhere in the world, you can find a buyer without much slippage. You know, it might be, you might not be able to go to a coffee shop and get a gold coin, but you can find someone within some of your blocks that'll give you a, a reasonable amount of value for that gold coin. You can get it convertible pretty easily. Euro is pretty good. Silver is okay. And Bitcoin is already in the top 10. It might be number five or something, but at the bare minimum, it's in the top 10. And that's despite the fact that it's a 14-year-old currency. And so unlike the dollar or the euro, it doesn't have any sort of like local monopoly where it has this like dense, like very dense degree of acceptance. I mean, maybe now El Salvador is a, an exception, but you don't really have these dense areas of acceptance. Instead, it's, it's a digital currency that you can bring in many places around the world, especially urban cities, and it's already a top 10 currency by saleability, despite no, no monopoly, nobody enforcing it, and despite the fact that it's still very young, and the trend is up. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security, and it's the best way for you to own and secure your private keys. If you are still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time for you to take your Bitcoin security a little more seriously, because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way for you to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, and honestly, it couldn't be easier. 
I've been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up today, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. And Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us, so they're a great fit for what Bitcoin did in you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with Iris Energy on everything from the podcast to films to live events, and they're either sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. So we're really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin mining company. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. Also today, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy and always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is Ledin a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. All right, I'm going to see if I can get you to agree on something. Uh, we can start with you, Jeff. Do we need and should we have central banks? <laughs> of course not. We got along a long time without any in this country, and it was some of the best times in, the, in economic history. So, uh, central banks are superfluous in every single way. Um, even just the idea, set aside any f- functional differences that we have, just the idea that we need a public utility to manage either the supply of money or the price of money is just stupid. I mean, it's just literally stupid. And the reason, the only reason we have it is not an economic argument so much as it is a political one. So in economic terms, um, we got along a long time. Even the euro dollar's best days were when the Fed did nothing. The Fed sat back and, you know, managed the federal funds rate, which wasn't all that important to begin with, and it created unparalleled prosperity, which the Fed then claimed credit for when it wasn't actually. So no, we don't need a central bank. We need a, a sensical monetary structure that if you give it the right rules and right, um, right parameters, it will be self-contained and therefore doesn't really need any influence from outside forces. Do you feel similar? Yes. I don't think we need a central bank. Um, one thing I point out, though, is in the fiat currency system, you kind of do. Because when the dollar was created, it was defined as a certain amount of silver. It was actually defined as like a trimetallic standard. There was like gold, silver, and copper. Um, and then when it shifted over to the fiat currency system, basically the dollar is defined as like a liability of the Fed in one way or another, either physical form or bank reserve form. And so obviously Bitcoin, you don't need a central bank. A Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. It's backed up by energy uh, from, from the miners and it's backed up by the nodes. 
Um, but if you try to run a fiat currency system without a central bank, that's kind of a challenge. And I think when, when something did, ex like, did exist and no longer exists, you have to ask why anywhere. So for example, people were on a gold standard, gold is harder money than the dollar. You know, for most of commodity money history, harder monies kept replacing softer monies. So you, know, you, you, you kind of went up the, the stack and you found gold was like the hardest money. And then why was it beat by the dollar and to some extent the British pound, which was technically softer money? And one of the answers was speed. So when they, when they made the telecommunication systems in the second half of the 1800s, they laid the undersea cables, all these banks from around the world could communicate with each other. And gold was super slow. You couldn't send around and verify it nearly as fast. And so you had that speed mismatch between transaction speed and settlement speed. And that allowed for centralization. And then politics is one of those things that exists everywhere and it starts to encroach and the more arbitrage it has in this case they had this huge speed mismatch that they could arbitrage and so of course it's political but that politics happened literally in every country everywhere and we have to ask why and it's because you had the technological mismatch so you had basically a century and a half where it's actually hard to send liquid value long distances with any sort of trust between different countries and things like that. So they were kind of just relying on whoever's the strongest country to run the ledger. So it was British pound in the kind of the first portion of that telecommunications era. And then it was the Federal Reserve, the, the dollar. And so they, they kind of shifted over to those systems with all their faults. And so I think 2009 represented kind of the first alternative that says, hey, you don't need to do that. But it's not like when it's born, we can just all get it. You know, it's not like WorldCoin, we can go around and scan everybody's eyeballs and give them all the currency. Instead, it's like there's this emergent thing that's growing, and the world has to slowly figure out what this is and decide whether or not they want to exchange other value for it. And I think it, it by extension, just has to take a long time. It's an emergent money. I think you guys asked the wrong question. It's not do we need central banks, do we need banks? Because the larger issue here is what is a bank? And as Lynn just pointed out, whether it's a central bank or a bank, it's nothing more than a ledger keeper. So if we have a centralized ledger like Bitcoin or some form of blockchain, do we even actually need the banks? Because one thing that banks are supposed to provide as a, a service of efficiency is intermediation, which... I think you probably, I don't want to, I don't know if you agree with me or not, well, but I think banks I haven't done a very good job with intermediation these days, so do we even need banks? Well, well no, I mean, there are Bitcoiners we know of who survive without banks. They survive with a multi-sig wallet or a hardware wallet. We, we know that that's, that exists already. I think there's certain infrastructure we can't get away from if you've kind of got a mortgage. You know, how do you pay a mortgage from a, yeah, Bitcoin wallet, I'm sure somebody's figured it out. We need, perhaps need companies that provide... But why uh, can't you, though? I mean, why wouldn't you be able to replicate everything that a bank oh, does no, you without can. the structure of a... It's, the corporate structure of a bank? I, I think you can. Is how much of the infrastructure is there at the moment. There are people who... You know, if you went back nine years, it would be very difficult to live entirely on Bitcoin. But now you can because there's Bitcoin debit cards or, you know, there's global liquidity. I mean, you can go to pretty much any country in the world now and exchange your Bitcoin locally for dollars or local currency. So I think I think the trajectory is, yes, we are heading there. We're just not there on every single part of every life. I think, so banks kind of historically served two main functions. One was that they sped up money and made it more convenient. So for example, if you're trying to bring gold along the Silk Road and you're worried about robbers and you're worried about the weight of the whole thing, 
you can deposit it with a bank and then get a claim for it and then bring that claim with you. And it's kind of like it's signed to you and it's lighter. And if it gets stolen, you can go back and figure out a way to avoid it. There's basically, it increased the, the, it reduced the friction and the verification of moving gold around or other types of, of foundational money. So there was kind of this like increasing type of technology, this kind of proto-banking and then full banking to try to speed up the fact that we just had limited, that the physical qualities of money were limited. So that's number one. And then number two was the provision of credit. Um, but you kind of got that bastard combination of fractional reserve banking where because they're both trying to fix a speed mismatch and they're offering credit, it becomes like a, a mutant form of it. And so I think in a world, let's say with a Bitcoin world, um, you don't need banks in their current form. I think it still helps to have financial services companies that can provide, they can do collaborative custody. They might be able to do, um, you know, kind of uh, time deposit type of credit. So not fractional reserve banking, but like, you know, time match type of, of credit provision, uh, short term lending for, for things like that. There's still financial services. That's always going to be kind of a case. It's even to some extent a scaling solution um, for very small amounts of Bitcoin or very fast forms of Bitcoin. But the role of banks changes based on the underlying technology and then hopefully becomes much less because Bitcoin is automating and giving the power kind of back to the user. And that what's left for, for financial services companies to do is much less than the, the form they've been in. Yeah, that's that's kind of I'm sorry. That's kind of the point here is that the idea is that banks or whatever their successor are move from the center of the system to the periphery, and they have to compete to actually perform useful roles in order to survive. Whereas today they perform rent seeking and political cover, which is the opposite of what we want. So a non-bank world should be far more efficient because it moves banks to where they should be and makes them actually perform a useful role. There's something we agree on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't you feel better? I feel better. But with a non-bank world and a non-central bank world, where does the issuance of currency come from in a fair way, Jeff? See, that's the A to B transition. Where does it come from? It comes from... The B. The B. <laughs> All right, listen. Uh, obviously, this is amazing. I expected. We're going to open the there mic. There are other B words too, you know. I'm sure people have got some questions. Please queue up. Just again, please don't give us your life stories. Just give us a good, quick question. Lots of people have got some. We want to get through as many as we can. Thanks, Peter. Uh, big fan of everybody on stage today. Um, it seems to me that a lot of this discussion is around definitions and around the system. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the rules of the system. You know, there are these multinational rules like Basel III that govern how banks treat deposits for the sake of lending against those deposits, which is, in effect, the rules of the game for the fractional reserve system. And then every country implements their own versions of Basel III. Can you talk a little bit about the intentionality of the civil servants who are writing those rules? Are they aware of the problem being caused by those rules? And uh, do you view those rules as being relevant to the challenge that you're talking about? Or do you think it's just a, a technical detail that's irrelevant and it's, it's all central bank money printing? Thank just you. very quickly, the people who are whispering and talking at the back, we can hear you very loudly. And so like, just out of respect for these, uh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Do you want to take her? Do you want me to take it? No, we, 
I would defer. So I think there's a couple ways of looking at it. One is that regulators are usually fighting the last battle. So if a fire happened, they want to put out the fire and they want to make sure that type of fire didn't happen again. Whereas the problem is that usually the next fire comes from something they're not expecting, right? So it's kind of like this current environment where they said, hey, banks should hold more treasuries. And then now ironically, treasuries are what's giving them like a problem, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Um, but another thing that Basel III does is, and, and kind of similar types of regulation is it's like various ways to have banks and other financial institutions hold more government debt. So as we've been in this environment of higher and higher sovereign debt to GDP ratios, they keep finding ways to have more types of pools of capital need to hold more government debt. So it's, it was with money markets. It's like they had to increase their allocation of treasuries and all these things. There's all these like regulatory overhauls. And then same with Basel III. It's like banks have to basically hold more treasuries than they used to. I think most of it is just, as Lynn said, we agree again, that um, bureaucrats realized that they were outgunned, but for a long time it didn't really matter because everything seemed to be fine. Then 2008 happens and suddenly they got to pretend they're doing something. So, you know, they had created capital ratios way back in the 1980s and there was other ratios that go back further than that. But either way, obviously the capital ratios were worthless, so they came up with new ratios. Not because the new ratios are effective, because as we just saw, the LQR are absolutely meaningless too, um, but they have to sell the public the idea that we learned our lesson, we took a look at the banks, and we fixed the problem. And they fix the problem in a nonsensical way that doesn't actually impact anything other than being able to tell the public we did something. Because that's what bureaucrats do, and one of the reasons why the Eurodollar system was so successful to begin with was to get out from under regulations because there's always someplace else you can go. But politicians can't let the public know that because then it would sound like that we, they have absolutely no control and authority. And that's the last thing they want to do. So they're going to create, they created the capital ratios and then all these banks failed with sterling capital ratios. They created the liquidity coverage ratios and other things in Basel 3.5. And, and then we just had a bunch of banks fail with terrific sterling liquidity coverage ratios. They're going to come out in the next several years. I think there's a base of four in the works now. They'll come out with the next several, several years with a base of four and a half that will come up with some other metric that will be completely horseshit too. But as long as they can tell the public we're on it and the public has no clue what the hell they're doing, it's, it's a, the shell game continues. Lane Rettig. Lane Rettig, everybody. This is epic. Thank you guys so much. Um, Jeff, you said that uh, your form of perfect money would balance commercial supply and demand. I think it's a really useful, like, interesting definition, but it strikes me as something that like, maybe Bitcoin is not particularly good at in its current form. And so I'm wondering, which obviously is a, a cause of volatility, how do we achieve that without fiat, without central banks? Yeah, like, you, you alluded to a self-contained system. What does that mean? Yeah, that's, that's the real question here. And I don't like the question to begin with because I think it's, you know, there is no such thing as perfect money. Um, I, think we have, <laughs> I think we have to have enough humility to understand that monetary systems come and go for a reason. And that our grandchildren, if we do this right, our great-grandchildren will be having these very same discussions. Um, so there is no perfect money. So the answer is, what is the least imperfect form of money? Maybe that's Bitcoin. I don't know. I happen to believe that it is not elastic enough. It's not useful enough in wide enough, wide enough area. But that maybe somebody will figure out a way to do I mean, are, isn't that what the side pools are for and various other, trying to make Bitcoin a little more elastic? Um, 
But as it becomes more usable and more acceptable in more places than what Lynn says, that you build upon network effects and everything else. So as long as there's some way for it to be able to continually match supply and demand, and to be able, this is what intermediation is so important, to be able to understand the legitimacy of demand and not, not just simply fund every stupid speculative idea that there, every subprime mortgage idea that there is, then it can become a self-contained system that can be sustainable that doesn't need a central bank or central authority. But it also has to be smart and flexible, which again requires some, some form of maintenance and upkeeping too. I think a fundamental issue is that if a currency knows about the rest of the world, right, that opens questions, right? So gold does not know what the world's doing. Gold is just gold, it's just atoms, it's very hard to mine that's why no one can just create, create more of it rapidly other than when we find a new continent or something like that. You know, sometimes you have bursts of new gold, but for the most part, we don't know how to make new gold rapidly. And because gold is kind of, the fact that gold doesn't know what's going on is, is partially why gold is so effective at money. Whereas any, and people in the Bitcoin space or kind of adjacent spaces would know this is like the Oracle problem, right? How do you, how do you gather information? How, how does a supposed ideal money know how much money needs to be in the system, right? And so the answer for the past 150 years has been central planners are looking around and saying this is how much money needs to exist, or they don't even know how much money needs to exist, but once they actually find a liquidity crisis, they just throw money at it. So they, they, the market kind of tells them when they need more money. Um, but then, of course, the, the cost of that is devaluation and central control. And so uh, the way I would phrase it is that fundamentally... If you have a self-referential system, something that is is just it just is it doesn't it doesn't have a mechanism, a central way to kind of test the rest of the world and make a decision, um, then it's going to be inflexible money, and that's why gold and that's why Bitcoin are useful. It's the fact that they don't have some sort of oracle that tries to go out and figure out how much money they think the world needs and adjust the supply accordingly, and. You know, you can always have a fluctuating amount of credit based on top of it. I mean, obviously, in a hard money system, you'd have less credit. Hopefully, you wouldn't have fractional reserve credit. But you can have time deposit credit and things like that. And that can ebb and flow based on what's happening in the economy. But the base layer itself, the base amount of units in the system don't change. And one thing you see in these kind of like fiat systems or central planning systems, even, even gold-based systems, when you have like a gold as the asset and fiat current, like you know, dollars or pounds attached, pegged to the gold, is that all this credit creation happens, and then when shit hits the fan, it's never credit that's allowed to fully contract down to the amount of base money. It's that they decide, they, re, they redefine what base money is. So they say, okay, instead of, a, instead of a dollar being worth 120th of an ounce of gold, we're going to make it 135th of an ounce of gold. And so the same amount of gold can now cover, you know, the same amount of dollars that it used to. And so that's always kind of the system in place, and when you have a really hard money, it makes it that that's impossible. And that's a good thing for the user perspective. Uh, it's Ali, yes. right? Ali Haman from Tahini's. Yes, that's right. There you go. Thank you, guys. Uh, Jeff, Lynn, thank you guys for the debate. This was uh, awesome. Uh, Jeff, when you were talking earlier about um, the characteristics of perfect money, uh, you were talking about... Least imperfect. Yeah, well... <laughs> You were talking about elasticity as being a character, one of those characteristics, and I'd love to get both of your opinions on uh, why is that an important characteristic as opposed to divisibility to make a money available all over the world. 
I mean, I can go, but I think you're the one that has that more of a, like, I don't view elasticity as a key part of my. I know you don't, but I do. Yes. And the reason is because the visibility, it's, it's not something we're wired to accept. You know, you can't always, and it's, it's sticky and it's, it, it's harder to adjust through divisibility than it is through um, supply. So supply being a more useful mechanism to adjust given the dynamic world we live in. That's, I think, the overriding the factor here, that the world is not static. And so a static form of money is going to require a constant level of adjustment. It's going to have to adjust one way or the other. And historically speaking, fixed money systems do two things. First thing is they lead to huge black markets. So you're always going to have quasi-money floating around the edges of a fixed money system anyway. That's all. That's ironclad rule of humanity. You put a constraint on somebody, somebody tomorrow's hired a lawyer to figure out a way to get around that constraint. That's always going to be the case. So you're never going to have a true fixed money system to begin with. But even assuming that you could, you're asking the system to adjust through prices. And usually the system doesn't adjust through prices, it adjusts through activity. So if you get into a deflationary period where the, the the monetary system is not elastic enough to expand, then what you end up having is entrepreneurs have to fire all their workers because they don't have the funds to pay them. That's why deflationary deflation and depressions historically go together. And that's really where elasticity, the idea of a centralized elasticity came from, was try to fix this problem in quasi-fixed systems. I think it ultimately ties the problem of debt, and that ultimately ties the problem of the speed mismatch between transactions and settlements. And so you have to ask the question, why can so much debt build up in the first place? And it's in large part because the underlying settlement medium, say gold back in the day, was slow and hard to verify, whereas dollars or pounds and things like that were fast. And so banks could get away with creating a lot more deposits relative to the gold and a lot more debts and, and claims, even, even compared to the amount of deposits. And when it all blows up, they repeg the system. And when you have a very high... So deflation normally is a good thing. We want prices to go down. We like the fact that electronics get cheaper over time. You like the fact that all these but things... That's not monetary deflation. That's yeah. productive yeah, it's productive so That's different. We're, you're right. We want prices yeah, to go down for that reason, down. not because there's not enough money. Yes. But when you have that kind of long-term deflation, why do central banks fight against deflation so much? And, and the answer is because they operate in such a highly indebted system, which is only kind of possible because they always bail that debt out. So you have tons of debt in the system. And if, if, like, if you owed, if you had a mortgage and then like a crazy deflation happened, so your wage collapsed, price of everything else collapsed, but you still, owned, you still owe that mortgage, you'd be screwed. And that, that's the same true for corporate debt. That's the same as true for government debt. Anything that anyone who owes liabilities, especially a lot, generally does not want deflation of their wages and of goods and services and everything else. And that's, and that's what breaks the system. So when you have this, this kind of current system we've been in, this very high debt system, most people fear, fear deflation, uh, especially you know, outside of certain niches. They fear widespread deflation. Whereas if you did not have a highly indebted system, which I think you, you would have if you had a money that's both fast and hard. So it's one, it, it can't be diluted, and two, it can be pulled around and verified very quickly when need be. It's very hard to build debt on top of that system. And when you have less debt, deflation's less of a problem. So, so you're basically saying the people with the most debt are at most risk, and the people with the most debt is the government. 
and therefore they're incentivized to create inflation because deflation is bad for them, whereas inflation is bad for everyone else. Yeah. Huh. But here's, Fancy here, that. I think that this is the age-old question that monetarists and people who study money and banking have been talking about and arguing over for probably as long as there's been fractional lending and debt, which is if we limit the amount of debt, do we limit the amount of economic growth that's attainable? And historically speaking, those two things correlate. Mm -hmm. Debt goes up, economic prosperity go up. Whether we like it or not, those two things go together, and they have gone together. They have gone together in every instance, or nearly every instance. Uh, so uh, the question is, by limiting, that's the thing. Is it worth it to limit the inevitable deflationary downfall to shave off economic growth on the upside? What, what would 2008 have looked like if, if what, what, what would the world today look like if we didn't have a 2008, but we didn't have all the economic growth from the 80s and 90s forward? And that's really the argument, I think, that, that, that that's really the way to structure the argument. I, that's a fair question. Uh, next up, we have Natalie Smolensky. Hello. Hello. Hi. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, thank you. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, I particularly appreciated the point you made about um, the proliferation of the euro dollar as a function of the rule of law. Um, in the United States, and that serving as a kind of template for the enforcement of contracts, which is every lender, creditor, debtor relationship. Um, and this is where we really begin to get into the role of the state um, in, the, in, in backing the value of money. Um, so, you know, one of the things that makes Bitcoin such, such a key innovation is that it has automated one of the functions of the sovereign, of the state, and that is the sovereign violence involved in final settlement. Um, so in ancient times, final settlement meant sending your cousins to beat up the cousins of the other guy who owed you money and to settle the debt. Um, that function of routinized violence um, was then taken on by the state and enabled all sorts of tyrannies because people, societies were willing to make that trade-off decision in order to not have to personally um, exert that kind of violence themselves for every economic transaction. Now we have that violence baked in at the protocol level. And so in effect, we've obviated the need for a whole category of sovereign violence. Um, we have a rule-based order that is protocol-based, that is fully global. And so what what I would ask you is, does this replace the euro dollar system over time? Uh, I, <laughs> Natalie, do you want my seat here? Do you want to take over? <laughs> By the way, Lynn and I are talking about this Friday afternoon, if y'all are around. <laughs> so the short answer is I think so. And one, I think we can kind of go through the three phases. So. Gold was successful because it had a rule of law, with law being nature. It was just the, the rule of how physics works that made gold, you know, the supply of gold had a certain rules to it. Not that humans decided, it just had rules. And then when gold wasn't fast enough, we went to, to fiat currencies. And which ones were successful? The ones that were tied to the largest economies, which, which generally were ones with rule of law. And that's why even other countries would accept that currency. And so it's kind of like a, a, a struggle version of gold, but faster, where you're, you're not as rule of law as like nature is, but you're 
close enough and, you, and it's workable and it's faster so it works. And of course, what, what Bitcoin is, is it takes that rule of law, puts it in a code, and then gives it to anyone who wants to run it on their laptop to enforce. So instead of being enforced by some sort of central collection of powers, it's globally and widely distributed. And I think that, that can, it can solve a lot of things. And, and you know, going back to why the euro dollar market exists, there's a lot of reasons for it. But I think the two reasons why it's proliferated so much is one, that it, one is that it, it's the dollar. So the dollar devalues over time. And if you have a currency that devalues over time, especially if it devalues slowly, that's actually kind of the sweet spot. Because if you have a currency that devalues quickly, no lender wants to lend in that currency. If you have a currency that does not devalue, most borrowers don't want to borrow in it, other than maybe for short periods of time for like high impact things. But if you have a currency that devalues slowly, like a developed market fiat currency, then lenders want to lend in it because they can borrow it even cheaper. And borrowers want to borrow it to buy something harder or to, to do something with it. And so the combination of a gradually, gradually devaluing currency and then the opaqueness and the fact that you can keep lending more of this into existence has been a really rough combination. So opaqueness plus devaluing. And I think over time, as the liquidity of the Bitcoin network grows, and as it's useful as a global settlement medium, and as all people in all these different countries can choose to allocate some of their monetary energy to that rather than to dollars or euro dollars, I think that slowly over time displaces the system. You know, right now there are people in developing countries that just literally will hold physical cash dollars as one of their key mechanisms of savings. And I think that that over time becomes increasingly unworkable and undesirable compared to holding Bitcoin as, as their you know, long term. And, and it's been in this state where it's, it's very volatile because it's still very low allocated to globally. But I think as you get more and more adoption and it becomes larger and more liquid and less volatile, people, more and more people, that kind of fuels itself because then more people view it as something reliable that they can hold. And so I think it kind of slowly chokes out the euro dollar system, but it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Okay, uh, you, you get the final question again, because you had it twice, you again have to keep it brief. Okay, uh, my question is very brief, which is that um, what will happen, so I really enjoyed your discussion on not enough dollars, but too many dollar claims. What about, what will happen, I read this paper that claimed that if you just convert those claims to equity, so when you deposit into a bank, you simply get shares of a mortgage-backed ETF instead of like fixed dollar claims. That'll fix everything because if everything crash, everybody's bank balance crashes and there's no run on the bank. Um, would this system work? Are there any problems with such an approach? So you're talking about converting deposits into essentially equity for the bank. Basically, like yeah, instead but then the of, equity it, it, would have to be transferable, right? It's yes, it's liquid transferable equity. So imagine instead of depositing into a bank, Isn't I just, just directly the same situation as a depository now without FDIC insurance. Because you're just you're still at risk of loss. Yes, but the loss is not is run proof. Because if let's say mortgage-backed securities fall by fifty percent, I gain no benefit for being in line of in ahead of everyone else. Like everyone else, I my portfolio drops fifty percent. So you don't have situations where there's a like liability and asset mismatch at the bank because the liabilities drop with the assets. Yeah, but what happens when everybody wants to sell the equity? Because well, the their, equity their portfolio goes, is suddenly worth 50% less. You still have the liquidity problem. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's a no. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, and what what he's describing is a bail-in, essentially. I mean, that that happened in in a couple European uh, contexts, um, and it's one of the mechanisms they have in the near term to deal with like a bank basically becoming insolvent. They say, okay, we can't pay everything back, but here's some devalued bank equity to make up for it. And so you kind of own this like mixture of claims of future dollars or future euros and things like that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you still have a problem, which is you now, you now own a basket of securities that is supposed to pay you dollars or euros in the future. And the question is, where do they get those dollars and euros from? There's still more claims than there are underlying units. And then, too, to his point, if everyone wants to sell, if people don't want to hold that equity, they don't no, want to hold that. Nobody's going to hold. <laughs> and so when they sell it, the question is, who's got the dollars or who's got the euros to buy all those claims from? There's still, it's, that, that bail-ins kind of work in this targeted sense where, like, you know, a swath of banks go bust, but it's still based on the premise that this underlying currency is used and accepted and that they can then sell it for those claims and that um, there's enough of it. Yeah, but you can't do it on a broad scale. Yeah, I, I think I get what you mean now. Yeah, so it definitely doesn't work on a like, uh, systems level scale. Yeah. yeah. Great. Okay. Brilliant. So, uh, Lynn Alden, Jeff Snyder, thank you so much. Come on, louder, come on. Uh, that was an absolute pleasure. Uh, Danny Knowles, come on. I love this guy. Uh, Emma Furman, who organizes everything for us, keeps us in check. Connor McCormack running the cameras at the back. Austin, wherever Austin is. Um, Big shout out my sponsor, Iris Energy. Uh, I can, we can't do any of this without sponsors. They pay for us to do all of this, and they've been unbelievable to us. They've uh, allowed us to, to do these events, to make more films. We're making four more films. We're off to Argentina in July to make a film on inflation. Uh, we're off to Lebanon, hopefully. We're off to Canada. We're off to, we're off to so many places. So uh, big thanks to Iris Energy for doing that. Go and check them out. They're an unbelievable mining company based on 100% renewable energy. I think some of them are here, so check them out. I have to give a massive shout out and show my appreciation for them. Uh, we're going to stay here uh, until they kick us out. Uh, we're going to be drinking at the bar. I'm going to see... We've got a Rail Bedford booth at the event. Come down and say hello. We've got the two, tr the two trophies we won this year. So come down and see them. And to everybody wearing something that's... I've got all these Bedford things point of view. I live in a shit, like a little town called Bedford. Like it's, no one would ever have heard of it. Yet you come here and there's people wearing Bedford. I thank you so much. It means so much to me. I love you all. Come to the bar, we'll have a drink. See you all soon. All right. What do you think of that? It's a monster, right? So good to get Jeff and Lynn together finally. We will do it again in the future. We'll do it in a studio setting with a pen and paper, so I can get them to slowly walk through their arguments. Because in, in the heat of that, it was very difficult to follow. I definitely want your feedback, though. Let me know what you think. Who's right? Jeff? Lynn? Are they both right? Drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I'm back off to the BTC Prague event now. I'm going to pack up, say goodbye to some people, and then I'm going to head back to the UK. 
It's time to prepare for the football season. Yes, Rail Bedford season is coming up soon. As I mentioned in the intro, we've got another live event coming up in Sydney, Australia. Get a ticket at whatbitcoindid.com. Click on WBD Live. Outside of that, drop me an email. Hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right, have a great weekend. I'll see you all next week. <laughs>